If you're new with us, uh, we're in a, a short series called Your Kingdom Come, in which we're trying to think through uh, what our role is related to uh, being uh, dual citizens, citizens of the heaven, citizens of the heaven, citizens of heaven, and citizens of the United States. And uh, we're in a very important text here in Romans 12 and 13 today. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at these verses. Father, you tell us in your word that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. And he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water. Its leaf never, never withers. It always bears fruit. We pray you would make us those kinds of people like trees planted by streams of water as your word nourishes us that we may bear fruit. Help us today to meditate on your word and to be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. H.C. Morrison gave his best years to uh, Christian missionary service in China at the turn of the 20th century. And returning to the States, he happened to be traveling on the same exact ship that carried President Teddy Roosevelt. I don't think we travel like that anymore, just being on a boat with the president. The adventuring commander-in-chief was coming back from a safari in the continent of Africa. And arriving in the harbor of New York City, Morrison was leaning on the deck rail, uh, taking in all of the sights. Signs were everywhere welcoming the president. Bands were playing. Flags were flying, banners were displaying, uh, kind words of reception. Firefighting boats were, were spraying the, the greetings in the skies. And looking at it all, this humble missionary, Morrison, began to feel self-pity, for no one was there to greet him. And as he was sulking on the deck, he suddenly sensed the words that God would have spoken to him in that moment. H.C., you're not home yet. Christians are strangers and sojourners in this world. We will never be fully home in this country or another country. The author of Hebrews put it really well. For we here have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. We are pilgrims on our way to heaven, and that's where our true citizenship lies. Now we know that, right? But here we are on American soil, and how then should we live? How do we relate to this present world? Well, that's what Romans 12 and 13 help us with. Paul tackles four subjects related to how Christians who are citizens of heaven relate to our enemies, the government, our neighbors, and the temptations of this fallen world. And it's very important for a number of reasons. And one of them is how we relate to the outside world is fundamental to our witness in the world. Our witness can be um, damaged if we don't relate properly to these, uh, to, to these, to these groups. Uh, our, our witness can be uh, advanced and, and helped by being uh, people who do not retaliate toward our enemies, who respect the government, who love our neighbors well, right? And so Paul views all of these in what you might call the, the already not yet dynamic of the gospel. That is, we're Christians now, we have salvation now, but we await the fullness of it. And you see this uh, kind of eschatological, this, this end time focus 
uh, in these verses. Uh, for example, in chapter 13, verse 11, having given us a series of exhortations, Paul says, besides this, in other words, add to what I've just said, the following that I'm about to tell you, and goes on to tell us that the day is at hand. The day is at hand. That's very important, right? We, we, we know that we are waiting the final consummation of our salvation. And as, uh, as we do that, we can leave vengeance to God because we know he'll have the last word on our enemies. We can look at the government rightly, letting go of political extremism. We can love our neighbor as the basic Christian ethic in life. And we can live in the light, resisting the dark temptations of this world. Yesterday was Reformation Day. And You've got to have a Luther quote in your sermon, I suppose, uh, on, on the day after. And that, this is the one I've used repeatedly here at Mago Day when Luther says, there are just two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And this is one of those passages that helps us understand how we live today in light of that day. In fact, chapter 12 is, is bookended by wait, a look back, as he says, in view of God's mercy, this is how you should live, and a look forward. We look back at what God has done for us in Christ, and we look forward to all that God has for us in Christ. And so let's look at these four practical instructions. Paul tells us, as people who live in light of that day, leave vengeance to God, look at the state rightly, love your neighbor, and live in the light. Okay? Leave vengeance to God. Verse 17, he shifts here as he's been talking about how we relate to those inside the community of faith to now look toward the outside world when he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. This picks up the idea that he had mentioned in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. This is drawing on Jesus's teaching in a variety of places, like Matthew chapter five, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You glorify your Father when you don't retaliate, when you leave vengeance to God, when you love your enemies. And he goes on to say, Jesus in the Beatitude there, even the Gentiles, that is unbelievers in that context, love their friends. What sets you apart is that you have the ability to love your enemy. So he says here, don't go around repaying evil for evil. Like, I love a good game of volleyball when the volley's going back and forth. And this is what we like to do in our flesh. We like to play kind of verbal uh, volleyball and, and retaliate. And, and Paul says, no, we, we, we don't do that. In fact, verse 18, he says, it's, it's more than that. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he's emphasizing here again this, this ethic of non-retaliation and of peacemaking. Now, how many of you know that we're all susceptible to vengeance? Maybe not the Wyatt Earp in the Tombstone movie. You know, I, I, you, you tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me. We, we may not say that kind of thing whenever we are offended, but we find it really hard to love our enemy. We find it really hard to pray for them, right? It's amazing what would happen if we prayed for our enemies. And otherwise, what happens is that the, the experiences of pain and loss are only intensified when you try to repay evil for evil. No one wins, everyone loses. And instead, he says, we should, we should cultivate this ethic of honor and be peaceable individuals. 
Notice verse 18. As far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. Now, if you're looking at your Bible over in chapter 14, verse 19, is another really important verse on this subject of peacemaking. This one in verse 19 of chapter 14 is within the community of faith when he says, so let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's what the, the church should be known for. And here, you recall from last week perhaps, he's dealing with division and a squabble over food and drink and, and the Sabbath with, with the Jew and Gentile practices. What should they be about? They should be about peace. They should be about building each other up. Now, in chapter uh, 12, verse 18, this is speaking not inside the community of faith, but the wider society. We are also to do everything that we can to promote peace. Believers are to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is how we reflect the nature of our God. And our God, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, is the God of peace. He says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And he's going to bring in total shalom. He's going to bring in total peace. So that is to say, within the wider society, we are not to be marked by meddling, quarreling, agitating people, sowing seeds of division. Now, I love that Paul has some qualifiers in verse 18 as well, because sometimes reconciliation doesn't work, doesn't happen. But notice what he says, if possible, and as far as it depends on you. So do everything you can to maintain peace, to be a peacemaker. And if reconciliation and, and, and uh, healthy relationships cannot exist in a particular time of strife, make sure it's their fault, not your fault. You do everything you can to be a peacemaker. Now, this doesn't mean that we cave in our, our, on our convictions. We, we don't do that sort of thing where we just throw away the truth and, and just try to all be friends. Instead, you operate with the principle of uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 50, where Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So in other words, we don't cave in, we keep our saltiness, but we still try to maintain peace. Well, he returns that idea of vengeance in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I want you to see here uh, how practical a belief in the wrath of God is. Like if you don't believe in the wrath of God, you can't do this. You'll want to take vengeance into your own hands. But if you really believe in the wrath of God, then you should see that your puny little retaliation is nothing in view of that. You can be about peace and you can leave wrath to the only one who can exercise it perfectly and justly. And so you can say, I'll leave it to God. I was reading it just this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And then he says, the Lord will repay him. Like he's, he's not holding a grudge. He's like, that brother, he, 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 I don't, we don't know exactly what he did, but he did him great harm. And he says, the Lord will repay. Now, when you're operating like that, you can just live as a humble saint who trusts in the God of justice. And you can actually bless those who persecute you. You can give your enemies something to drink in hopes that an act of grace, that's what they need, an act of goodness, might actually change them. So let's go about, he says, verse 21, not trying to overcome evil with more evil, 
another, another volley across the net with you did me evil, I do you evil, but rather we overcome evil with good. The way you deal with your enemy is not by vengeance and vitriol, but by grace and goodness. And this is so out of step with modern day culture, isn't it? So out of touch. But this is what a Christian should be marked by. Why? Because Jesus Christ reconciled us to our Father when we were his enemies. We have a Savior who did this. He overcame our evil with his goodness. And by his death, he has transformed us and made evil people good. Right? It's the peacemaking work of Jesus that gives us eternal life. And we are to be people who reflect his character. So we focus now on vengeance and blessing and not vitriol. We can focus on peace. We can focus on grace. Now, of course, this, this, on, on a civil level, we need courts and we need law enforcement. This passage is not saying there are no earthly consequences for a person doing evil. People have abused this through the years. Paul is not teaching that you let violence or abuse go unchecked. And it's important to see that the very next chapter is on the governing authorities. Right? They have the right to bear the sword, and God has appointed government as an institution to carry out judgment on this earth. We need to promote biblical justice and be good citizens now, as we're going to see, but ultimately we trust in the Lord's final judgment in the future. So we leave vengeance to God. Secondly, look at the state rightly. Now this is everybody's favorite passage. <laughs> Submitting to the government just sounds exciting, doesn't it? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, that's the main point of the whole paragraph here, is to submit to the governing authorities. You may wonder why Paul had to write this. Well, recall, he is writing to Christians in the very epicenter of Roman rule. And previously, as I mentioned last week, the Jewish believers had been expelled from Rome because of uh, uh, heated debates that were going on over Christ. And as early as six years after the writing of this letter, Nero would be killing Christians. And so how a Christian related to the government in Rome was a very important matter. And so what Paul does here very carefully is he stresses the need to avoid political extremism. And he corrects two extremes. These are big words, but hang with me. One, an over-realized eschatology. Anyone ask you what we talked about today? Use, use that phrase, okay? Or an under-realized eschatology. An over-realized eschatology is this idea that the kingdom of God is here, so pay no attention to the government, right? That, that, would, that would be, we're citizens of heaven, therefore we ignore everything related to this world and the government. It, it's, it's senseless. That's an over-realized eschatology. An under-realized eschatology, the kingdom is not fully here yet, so let's take up our sword and bring it. So one is, let's ignore Caesar, and the other is, we should fight Caesar. Paul gives the better option, namely, to submit to the governing authorities, but give your ultimate allegiance to Christ and to his kingdom. Let everyone be subject or to submit to governing authorities, everyone is included in this command and Paul isn't making a distinction between Christian rulers or non-Christian rulers that we are to submit we are to obey the authorities is represented broadly could be everything from the prime minister to local officials the president emperors etc 
And all through the passage, one of the things you see is that Paul understands, as we need to understand, that, that we stand under God when we submit to the government because it's how God has ordered the world. He says here that the authorities exist under the authority of God. You remember when Jesus was having the discussion with Pilate, and Jesus when he was saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says to Pilate, you would have no authority if it would not have been given you from above. So the government stands under the authority of God. Therefore, we, we obey the government for the Lord's sake, as Peter says. It's designed to do good things. We know the government is often, and the authorities uh, do not do good things. But Paul doesn't deal with any exceptions here. He's not dealing at all with when is it right to disobey the government and so on. He's simply here showing us that it has been established to provide justice, order, and civility. It's like the gift of marriage and family. It's, it serves to preserve and enrich humanity. And so he wants the Christians not to be these political revolutionaries and go about causing riots and, 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 and doing that sort of thing, but rather to, to be good citizens. And he, he wasn't naive about government. Some people have said before, Paul, you should stick to theology and don't talk about politics. <laughs> well, Paul had a very mixed experience with the Roman authorities. Sometimes he was protected. You read all through the book of Acts the, the, how the, the officials actually protected Paul. But he was also afflicted by the government. He knew that rulers could be unjust and just. And he also knew from redemptive history some really important principles related to those who are in authority, namely that God is sovereign over all of them, right? Uh, I've been reading it over the last couple of weeks, the book of Daniel, and uh, I love the first part of Daniel. The second gets a little wild, but, the, uh, but, but Daniel has this, his, I, I'm going to wait to preach on that one for a while. Uh, Daniel 2, 20, blessed be the, the, the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That's our God. And that's the same thing that's said over in uh, Psalm uh, 75. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Or one more reference from Isaiah 40. He says that our God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. Now, this is not to, to, to be disrespectful to leaders. We're supposed to honor them. It was simply to say that God is sovereign over the authorities. He can set them up and he can put them down. Now, he tells us why we should submit to them and, and the uh, second part of verse 1, since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that are uh, instituted by God, sometimes God gives officials and leaders to be a blessing to people, and sometimes he institutes them as a, as a means of trial and judgment. He has his own purposes. Now, what we need to be aware of is, is the fact that many Christians can sometimes be so absorbed with the earthly government that they can't see to the government of God, that he's over everything. They, they don't trust in the providence of God, and that's why they lose their mind when it comes to politics. We should engage in the process. We should be good citizens. We should speak truth to power when we can, but we should never freak out or make an idol out of a party or a candidate. 
In fact, the reason so many people today demonize others is because they idolize politics. You don't demonize people when you, when you don't have that idol. So he says here in verse 2, let me get in the right chapter. Where are we at? Chapter 13, okay. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Not a partial judgment now, but, but he's looking ahead to, to further judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Again, this is the way it's supposed to work, that, that as you go about in society doing good, then you should be commended for that, and you don't have to fear the authorities if you're not doing anything bad. Well, we wish that were the case all the time, but we know there are great injustices, not just in our country, but around the world, related to the abuse of power. But again, he's not dealing with the exceptions. He's giving us the ideal that Christians, ideally, who go about doing good, have nothing to fear when it comes to the officials. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. Notice, he calls governing authorities God's servant. Again, they're, they're operating under God and as part of the plan of God in his ordering of the world. For he is the servant of God, excuse me, verse uh, 4b, but if you do wrong, be afraid. <laughs> For he does not bear the sword in vain. So God has given the state the right to bear the sword, the right to punish evildoers. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. That is, this refers to your moral responsibility to do what is required. It is good and right to submit to the state. Why or how? Notice verse 6 and 7. Some of our favorite verses here. We'll put these on a coffee cup, huh? For because of this, you must also pay taxes. Watch out. <laughs> for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, you, you think our taxes are something, they, uh, Nero's taxes is what Paul's writing about, right? And they were highly unpopular, but he does not tell Christians to get tangled up in a backlash against the tax system. He says, pay them. Pay them in general. He says, uh, pay, pay to all what is owed, and then he gets specific. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is, is owed. Well, let me just summarize here what Paul is teaching. Submit to the governing authorities, and we should acknowledge God's design for them. And we should thank God for all that is done, all, that, all that's good that is done through them. Right? Now, we have some in our church. We have, we have law enforcement, and we're very thankful for those who do their job well. And we should, we should encourage them. We should tell them that. We as Christians, as we're going to see next week, should be praying for those who are in leadership. I said earlier on in this series that regardless of who wins our political elections, local and federal, we're going to pray for them. That's our responsibility. We are to be good citizens. We should engage in the political process for the common good. But we should rest in the providence of God. And we should make our ultimate allegiance King Jesus. He is going to return and he's going to rule with perfect justice and peace. Kings and kingdoms fade away but Christ endures forever. Jesus, the one who says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's the kingdom we get excited about. That's the kingdom that Hebrew says is unshaking. It is firm, it is forever. And so we wanna be good citizens. We want to 
give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but only to God what is God's. And we give him our lives, we give him our hearts, we give him our worship. Number three, I've got to move quickly. You guys are listening too slowly. Verses 8 to 10. <laughs> love your neighbor. <laughs> now we said last week that this is called the, the, uh, the Christian love ethic in, in chapters 12 and 13, and now he, he returns back to that. This is the most frequented theme in Romans 12 to 14, love. I was uh, speaking this past week in uh, Charlotte area. It was my first speaking engagement in seven months. almost forgot how to do it. And I, I was given a, a couple talks on conflict for my, my pastor friend, Brian Lowe. And after I finished, he, he got up and told the church, by the way, they meet in a former haunted house in Charlotte, turned into a church, yes, yeah, wild. Um, he says, church, I want you to pray this week. This is a big week for our country. And, and he says, and we have to love each other after election day. And that's just very practical instruction. Let me encourage you to do the same that regardless of what happens, we live out Romans 12 and 13. We're, we're, we're people of love, right? And here in this passage, Paul shows us the relationship between love and law, right? God's law does at least three things. It condemns, it restrains, and it guides. The first two have to do with the reality of sin in the world. It condemns, hopefully showing us our need for Christ and we, we become Christians, it restrains, that is, the law, the passage we just read is an example of that, how God's law can restrain evil and promote good. But there is a, a positive side of the law in that third category, that is, God's law guides us. Those who are new creations are now empowered to love, and it's the law of God that provides direction for how we love. In other words, love is not directionless. Love is not just whatever you want it to be. There's, there's a sanctifying function of the law, namely it guides us into love. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's going on about here when he says the only thing we should owe is love to one another. Now this is not a proof text against taking out a loan. The point here is that there is a debt that, sh that, that will never be settled and that is the debt I owe you of love. The debt we owe each other. We do not have a choice in this. We are obligated to love. The debt of love is permanent. It doesn't change based on seasons, based on circumstances. And he adds in verse eight, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, he tells us what he has in mind with this in verse nine when he rattles off the following commands about adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting. And then he says, they're all summed up with Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Now you think about that. How, how can those commandments be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you could probably work it out yourself, but adultery is obviously not love because it violates God's commandments. It's actually an expression of rebellion or lust, selfishness. It's anything but love. Likewise, murder. You're obviously not loving a person if you murder them. Or stealing. You're not loving a person if you steal from them. And then coveting is, is the, the commandment related to our desires. And coveting is not an expression of love of neighbor either. If you're wanting what your neighbor has, you're not loving them. And then Paul adds the phrase, and any other commandment to say, all of God's law reveals what God's love uh, what, what kind of love God ex expects from us. 
God's law reflects God's own character. He poured himself into the law, you could say. And so, and it's an amazing thing to say, it's all summarized, as Jesus put it, with love God and love neighbor. It's fundamental, it's basic. How do we live in light of the coming day? Well, we leave vengeance to God knowing he'll execute it. We submit to the governing authorities and we love our neighbor. Love fulfills the moral norms of the law, norms that transcend time and are fulfilled in Christ. The one who's made us new creations, giving us power to love. Finally, number four, we live in the light. We live in the light. Verses 11 to 14. This was the passage, you've heard me say before perhaps, where the North African theologian, St. Augustine, was converted by reading this paragraph. The story of hearing some kids sing a song outside and take up and read, and, and he goes and he finds a Bible, and he says, I determined to read wherever I first opened the Bible. <laughs> and this is where it landed, verses 11 uh, to verse 14. Fortunately, he didn't open up to Judas hung himself or something like that, but, but he, he, he opened up to this. He was 32 years old. He was enthralled with lust. You can read it in his book, Confessions, and God made him a new creation, and he never looked back. Well, what did he read? Here it is, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. That is to be spiritually alert. Be wide awake to the things that matter. Don't let your, your spiritual life uh, you know, uh, grow into lethargy, but, but rather be wide awake. Be ready to go. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, we have salvation now but we wait for the consummation of it. And it's closer today than it was yesterday. The day is coming, as he goes on to say, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now Paul's writing this some 2,000 years ago. It, we can say even more, it's closer than even when, when Paul wrote these words. The day is at hand, so how do we live in light of the day that is coming? Well he says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We live in the light. We, we cast away the kinds of sins that dominated our life before we became new creations. And we put something on. You know, yesterday was the day everybody had something on. They're all dressed up. But this is what the Christian puts on every day. We are to put on the armor of light. Or verse 14, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're already in Christ, but here he's, act, uh, he's speaking of a deliberate act of your will that you put on Christ. That is, you live out the identity you already have. And that's what holiness is, right? It's about becoming what you already are. Putting on the Lord Jesus. Putting on light. And then he gives us some examples of what it would look like to not do that, to stay in the dark. Let us, uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. These were uh, two sins that were particularly characterized or, or uh, uh, expressed within the, the pagan rituals and the, the idolatrous practices of Rome, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. And then notice, isn't it interesting, that in this list of obvious sins that we would call, you know, great darkness, he adds quarreling. What about that? Am I misreading that? No, that's what it says. Not in quarreling and jealousy. So these are the, I guess, more respectable sins, aren't they? I'm just, I'm just on Twitter. No, you're just walking in darkness, right? 
I'm not saying, by the way, if you're on Twitter, you're in darkness. Okay, I'm on Twitter. I mean the quarreling on Twitter. All right. Um, no, he says, put all of that away. And, and what, a, what a passage for, for the modern day. Like, do you realize how he perceives of this, this sowing seeds of division, of, of doing 2 Timothy 2 when, when Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. That's a quarrelsome person who is, is engaging in ignorant controversies. Proverbs speaks of this person who kindles strife by quarreling. And so he says, no, don't engage in that. Don't engage in jealousy. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Meaning, don't give any thought that may lead you into sin. Avoid even the desire for it. Make no provision for sin, meaning don't plan to sin. Don't daydream about sin. Do not seek to comfort your sin. Do not flirt with sin. Specifically in light of this passage, do not entertain an idea that, you know, a wild night of drunkenness and partying will cure my loneliness or my sadness or my boredom. Do not entertain the idea that committing adultery will satisfy unfulfilled romantic desires. Or if you're frustrated in your current situation, do not entertain the thought of growing jealous toward others. As a bitter person, do not begin quarreling with others. That's not making any provision for the flesh. You're starving it. Instead, direct your mind to the promises of God in Scripture. Direct your mind to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Direct your mind to the glory that is to come. Jesus Christ is better than sin. He's always better than sin. He's better than the sin of retaliation, better than the sin of dishonoring the government, better than the sin of, fall, uh, of failing to love our neighbor, better than the sins of the flesh. And one day soon, our Christ will come and he will eradicate the world once and for all of all sin. And we will no longer wrestle with this body of flesh. So, Christian, let me remind you again, live this day in light of that day. Because we're not home yet, but soon we will be. And we will see him. We will see him. Let's pray together. Father, we just pause before you and want to say thank you for your word, for the hope we have in the gospel. And I pray that the hope we have stored up for us in heaven would motivate love on earth. May we truly live each day in light of that day. Help us to not be retaliators, but to trust you, to overcome evil with goodness. Help us to look at the state rightly. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we don't want to give any provision to the flesh. We don't want to gratify its desires, but rather we want to grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day in which he makes all things new. And he wipes tears off of our faces. In which we don't need the sun because he will illuminate it all with his glory and his beauty. Fill our minds and hearts daily with the hope of his return, 
with the hope of one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. I pray these things in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen.